Hello, good morning, and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about political culture, cultural politics, and why I'm only ever a few minutes away from a serious rage stroke. I'm Frank Spring, joined as always by Ellie Jacobs, who is actually sitting here next to me today, and I have to tell you he's even bigger in person. Good to be with you in person, Frank. Uh, we are broadcasting or recording, I don't know what we're doing, we're podcasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, Let's call it that's that. A it's, a, that's, that's exactly, it's a portmanteau that's a, that we have created for ourselves. Don't you sons of bitches steal it. Yeah. Don't at me. <laughs> We are uh, actually live at the Truman National Security Project's uh, annual conference. Uh, it's been an exciting couple of days. Uh, great to hang out with people and talk some shop with some super smart people. Um, we would like to urge everyone to rate us and review us on iTunes. Please subscribe. Uh, all those things really actually do matter and will help Frank and I make some beer money. Uh, in addition, uh, please follow us on Twitter at, at TakingShip, and that's ship with a P as in psoriasis. Um, let's start with, I mean, Georgia's on my mind. Let's let's start there. Absolutely. Georgia's sixth uh, special election on Tuesday. Democrat John Ossoff lost to Republican Karen Handel by, I think in the end it was 3.7 points. Uh, this was the fourth, uh, the fourth congressional special election since the inauguration of Donald Trump. Uh, these were all seen uh, as Democrats, especially this one, as a you know a chance to strike an early blow against the Trump administration, potentially pick up a seat. Uh, didn't happen here; hasn't happened in any of them. Uh, there's been some debate about what the significance of this is, uh, so, but anyway, that's the, so we're going to dive right into uh, what happened in Georgia on Tuesday. Yeah, and uh, we'll also compare that to the other race that happened on Tuesday in uh, South Carolina. But sticking with Georgia for the time being, um, $30 million were spent. He lost by about 3.7. A few weeks ago, uh, when Frank and I talked about the race the last time, I had predicted he'd lose by 6. While I feel comfortable with my prediction still, uh, I was bested by more turnout, I suppose. Um, Speaking of turnout, there's a particular uh, numbers that that kind of blew my mind. It was that... um, the combined 17 or 18 Republican candidates in the primary combined for 51% of the total vote uh, that day, uh, and some 59,000 uh, Republican voters, registered Republican voters, did not come out to vote. And the flip side of that is the Democratic candidates, uh, Ossoff got 48%, I think, and you know two others kind of combined for one, um, got garnered 49%, and some 39,000 Democrats didn't show up. So you already had a two-point deficit to begin with plus uh, a 20,000 vote spread of registered voters who didn't show up. So you're starting in a pretty deep hole, and uh, it's pretty shocking to me that knowing that that people were dumping that much money and attention into the race, and um, I fear that it was because uh, Georgia was tagged as one of these uh, new purple states because of demographic changes. Uh, If you remember during the run-up to 2016, all the Nates and all their models and all that bullshit that clearly was, you know, not helpful because no one was paying attention to Wisconsin, uh, predicted that there's potential for Arizona, Texas, and Georgia to flip uh, because the, over the years it is uh, uh, larger Latino populations, large Af- larger African American populations, and the very cynical assumption that those two parties, those two groups, always vote Democratic, uh, led some pollsters and strategists to believe that those three states were now contestable. Um, and this district in particular, the Georgia 6th, uh, which Mitt Romney won by some 20 points, uh, Donald Trump only won by a buck and a half, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so which sort of, that's sort of all Hillary, added. Hillary Clinton won it by, uh, by a point. Oh yeah. I thought she lost it by the Georgia 6th. No, she won it by a point. Oh, I don't know. My point stands valid nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, there was a lot of money tossed into this and a lot of attention paid to it. And, 
um, it seems to me that that was not necessarily money wasted, but money that could have been spent better elsewhere and more smartly. Um, I would say, in addition to that, uh, what we've learned once again is that the Democrats sort of lack an overall message, um, and more in particular, in this particular race, they had a very poor messenger. Um, Ossoff, uh, um, you know, looked good on TV, sounded good on TV, had an interesting sort of, you know, next-gen bio, uh, but he was a young guy, did not reflect the district, uh, didn't have a ton of experience, didn't live in the district, which uh, carpetbagging is a real thing for all you budding politicos out there. Uh, you really want to pay attention to that kind of that kind of thing. Um, and you know, sort of more importantly, and this is something Frank and I are going to talk. Go, we're going to Frank will dive into this a little bit more. Is Asaf ran an interesting campaign. He did not run. Um, he did not really pull the Trump card too much. He didn't make. He didn't nationalize the race. He tried to keep it local, which is smart. And he also ran as much more of a moderate than you would think that the agitated Democratic loony left would have been comfortable with. And we we're hearing a lot of uh, carping over the last few days that uh, the belief that had he stuck to Bernie's little red book, uh, he would have won. Um, I am quite certain of the fact that he would have lost by 10 to 15 points had he followed the typical, you know, Maoist <laughs> yeah, sure. Now with centrism. Yeah. First, a first a correction. You were right. Uh, Hillary Clinton did lose that one. Did lose uh, that district by a percent. Uh, so she did not win Georgia, the Georgia six. She lost by a point. Uh, uh, Ossoff coming in a little worse than that at three point seven. To your point about uh, how this race is being, you know, we're, was the Democratic Party and and the progressive space more generally is kind of fixated on uh, this race as a you know as an emblem of what the party should do should or should not do next. Uh, I think it's fair. Yeah, there, you, it, there is a there is a segment that sort of looks at this and thinks, okay, if you know if we had run a you know a good solid social democratic candidate, uh, maybe we would have done better. Even on the the sort of thoughtful leftists, um, there's a, an acknowledgement that that probably that that would not have worked in the Georgia sixth. Uh, some of the there's one or two of the Chapo Trap House guys. Chapo Trap House is a leftist is a leftist podcast. Uh, they are friends of this podcast, and by that I mean they do not know we exist. Uh, you know, some of them have have been very public about saying if you had run a their districts and Georgia Six is one of them, where if you run, you know, a really solid you know leftist candidate with a solid left with a solid social democratic message, it's just not going to work there. Uh, that the Georgia Six is definitely one of those places you're not going to come. You know, at the same time. Uh, that you know that sort of that left that democratic leftist strain of thinking that what we really need to do is to run strong social democratic democratic all the time everywhere just because that wasn't validated by the Georgia sixth doesn't mean that there's is this is a default victory for a particular kind of center left centrist uh, democratic candidacy that has become quite popular um, not not alt center. Not alt. Not, not alt. Yeah, this is this was not this was not an alt. This was not an alt centrist campaign. Although I mean, it certainly had more than a whiff of it about it from time to time. But the basic structure of it posits that we should bring in a very conservative Democrat whose primary talking point is I am basically a Republican, except not as mean. 
Yeah. Uh, that and that and that was kind of you know and and this is not a shot at Ossoff personally, who I think in many respects deserves plaudits, plaudits for what he uh, was able to accomplish here. But the thing that was commonly said about him, in you know his media coverage and and so forth, is John Ossoff, a former congressional aide. So you know he knows the you know he was able to garner national support because he'd spent time on the on the Hill. He knew some of the he knew some of the important folks. Um, he was able to make a good case for himself as a candidate uh, amongst the people to who turn on money taps and so forth. And clearly he was able to persuade uh, a larger percentage of the voters of the Georgia sixth than any Democratic candidate ever has before that he was uh, that he was worthy of their support and their vote. So again, there's credit to be had there. The challenge for that, the challenge there is, you're essentially running a, you're running the blandest possible campaign, and I think he would probably cop to that himself. That the point here was, this is such a difficult uh, camp, this is such a difficult district for Democrats that you know that running as that you know that running with too much Democratic personality uh, is dangerous. At the same time, running without any personality at all, unless you're protecting a lead, which I mean, there were some polls that showed him up, but I don't think anyone actually ever believed this guy was so far ahead that he could run to protect a lead. That's really not a path to victory, in my experience. Uh, sooner or later, you're, I mean, victories, especially in tight races, are built off of risk, as are losses. But that risk is, but not taking that risk is a decision that can ultimately cost you a race. I don't know if this was ever winnable, but running someone whose essential position was, you know, I am, you know, desperately against single payer without much, you know, I'm desperately against single payer, although we did talk a fair amount about health care. Uh, I'm essentially against a lot of the positions that the Democratic Party has come to stand for. I am, you know, a very conservative figure who might otherwise have been a Republican, but for the fact that I'm a lot, a lot nicer, isn't motivating to a lot of people. It's not how you win a tie race. Right. And, uh, you know, we're going to, to contrast this to the race in the South Carolina 5th, right? Yes, it yeah. was a South Carolina fifth. Yeah, with Archie Purnell, who ran as a lo- sorry, ran as a local, uh, ran a I think a model campaign as a local kind of accountant, yeah. basically. Yeah, I'm and a I'm a local dude who like, spent like six bucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He I got mean, he came within two, two and a half, three, uh, three, like yeah, three, three points, which in South Carolina five is unheard of. I have to admit, he came in under my, he came in under my radar. I slept on him. Yeah, and and he ran a very quiet, very. Uh, you know, certainly not nationalized at all. Uh, of you know, but it was a model of I'm a local guy. I'm a local. I understand this community. You know, I have relationships. I get how things are done down here. I'm one of you. Uh, and you know, again, you know, spent 150 bucks. You know, probably bought a staff a ham sandwich. And you know, and that was that was it. I mean, it was. And and he ran. I think a model of what it is to run as a kind of non-nationalized local, sure, a conservative Democrat, but one who one whose conservatism is born out of his community rather than out of a calculated position on how not to appear like you really stand for much of anything. Uh, and and that was, you know, comparing any two congressional districts, there's always going to be an element of apples and oranges. Uh, it is worth looking at the way per, the way Parnell and and you know Ellie rightly has pointed out that he ran some terrific ads which we'll put up on our on our uh, on our Twitter feed uh, really kind of knew how to tell a story and and told it well in a way that Ossoff there really wasn't a kind of coherent narrative that ever really congealed there in part because all of his national interests wanted to nationalize that's where all that money that was spent on this race came from came, you know came from national interest that's true on both sides although Ossoff got more criticism for it. Uh, but you know the left kind of saw this as an opportunity to strike back at Donald Trump. That impulse was to nationalize the election. Uh, Ossoff and his team and every you know everyone who was in on that were all looking at data that said voters, especially uh, you know wavering Democrats and independents and you know any Republicans we might be able to peel off, do not want this election nationalized. It really turns them off. 
I mean, he was in many respects having criticized him. I will say his campaign was, you know, was really between a rock and a hard place. Right. Looking for a single explanation for what happened in Georgia on Tuesday, I would just say they ran out of Democrats and independents to persuade. Which they didn't have enough. In the, yeah, they, they didn't, just aren't they, enough. They started about, in yeah. a deficit, and again, you know, as those numbers that I rattled off earlier on, you know. Somebody should have looked at the math and said, maybe we don't spend thirty million dollars here. Sure. And the channel, and, you know, the other, the flip side is, you know, there's an argument to be made that had uh, Purnell uh, nationalized the race in the South Carolina fifth, it would have been a thirty million dollar race too, because the Republicans would have come in and yeah. with the heavy guns, and 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 he would have had to have equalized, you know, the amount of money coming and amount of money being spent. Exactly, and there's a good question as to whether he would have done any better for that at all. I mean, the challenge. Uh, for the D trip, and I think there's a longer conversation about its role and and you know kind of how the how the progressive space is shaping up. Uh, we've talked about that before. We'll talk about that again. The yeah, maybe, for, maybe next week we'll do a little bit more on the D trip and kind of where things yeah. stand and where they're going and talk about uh, um, Her Majesty Nancy Pelosi. Sure, we can get into yeah we can get into kind of the functioning of the party right now. But it's just worth saying now. You know, if you're, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't, because if they don't spend money on what was seen as a, you know, as a tight and a, you know, chance to really fight back, if they didn't spend any money on that at all, then everyone would have come out of the woodwork saying, well, you know, they abandoned that rate, they left, you know, poor John Ossoff to the wolves. Um, and if they do spend $30 million, then, you know, we here, the smart guys, are saying, aha, that was $30 million poorly spent. So there really, there, there wasn't really, well, first of all, it wasn't like the D-Trip just wrote a check for $30 million and handed it to someone. Their part of it was much right. smaller. Um, but even so, I mean, they were sort of, you know, you, you you know, you pick your you pick your targets. You pick where you think you can make a make a difference, and you you know, you take your shot. And they did on this one. And and again, while I think there are things the Democratic Party can lo- can learn from the structure of this race and from Ossoff's candidacy in particular, you know, again, I think the overwhelming answer here is they ran out of Democrats and independents to persuade and turn out because there just weren't that many. There weren't enough of them. Yep. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, and we'll talk about you know uh, Rahm Emanuel and some of the thoughts in two thousand six and. Um, kind of the destruction of state parties and how that's impacting these races uh, when we have a bit more time in the future. But while we're recording this during between sessions at uh, Truman Conference and uh, Frank has a um, uh, drinking, I mean, a wedding to go to later this afternoon. Uh, but I wanted to move on to uh, talk about the AHCA, a.k.a. Trump Care, a.k.a. Obamacare repeal, a.k.a. Ryan Care, a.k.a. One of the worst pieces of legislation ever written, and that's really saying something. The thing that astonishes me about the AHCA is that Republicans aren't making any effort to hide what it is, which is right. a you know a naked uh, tax break for primarily for the extremely wealthy. Uh, most of the benefit will go for the to the extraordinary wealthy. If some of it will accrue to people making more than two hundred thousand dollars a year, which, by the standards of the average by the average American, is quite a lot of money. Yeah, I think that puts you in the top seven percent. Yeah, seven or eight percent. Yeah, I think it's something along those lines. So you're talking. You know, there's a lot of you know. This is this is primarily for the one percent, and then there's another seven percent that are going to do better. Just fine. This, that are going to do just fine. Don't you worry about those top seven percent listeners. They're going to be okay. Right. Bearing in mind that these are the exact same people who don't need sure oh. healthcare coming from the states or from the government, yeah, they're, get, they're getting it from their companies. That's absolutely right. So you've got people who have money, uh, have who, have, who haven't, who have, you know, who have insurance, and 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 also apparently can't conceive that there is any circumstance in which either of those two things will change. Uh, so I mean, that's you know, that's what it sort of takes to support a thing like this. Historically, though, when Republicans have been trying to push something like this through, it's usually couched in the kind of standard trickle-down mumbo-jumbo of, well, you know, we're going to cut taxes for the extremely wealthy and something will happen 
and then there'll be some jobs and presumably some insurance or some something and everyone's going to be okay right like that's that's typically the kind of like and honestly i think i was giving them a little more credit than they deserve yeah. for it's coaching sort of like that old south park thing where it's uh, you know step one steal underpants step three step three make a lot of money and yeah. kind of step two you just kind of raise their arms and say, I don't know. know. Yeah, exactly. So this is, there is an element of that. Um, This one, they're not even doing that. I mean, this this one is just kind of like, I mean, this, this is just sort of like being like, actually, you know what? We really are the sheriff of Nottingham. Like we are just, we're just straight going to take money. We're going to give it to the extremely wealthy. And if a few thousand of you, a few hundred thousand of you should lose your health insurance, and if some of you should die, well, some guys are lucky and some guys ain't. Right. And what's even more astounding than that, are not only they're not couching it, uh, the four uh, Republicans who came out against it immediately, uh, Rand Paul, um, Dean uh, Mike Lee, no, Dean Heller came out for separate reasons. Came out for separate reasons, sorry, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Paul, uh, Cruz, Lee, mm-hmm. and um, uh, some other prick. <laughs> um, they came out because it wasn't mm-hmm. harsh enough. Yeah, because that's right. Yes, far enough. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Heller came out for Because we're still giving no. people some sort of health care, and yeah. we should, and according to Rand Paul, somehow we should all have health care for a dollar a day, which, here's a... We we have not we've kind of tucked around the edges on the healthcare debate because neither of us are well schooled enough in it to really dive into the details. But the primary problem with healthcare isn't just access; it's affordability. And affordability comes along because costs in the health insurance health world are exorbitant. Mm-hmm. And no one at this point, and I will continue to yell up and down that Democrats cannot just say we're vote this bill is terrible. They have to come forward and say Obamacare is not perfect. These are the five things we want to immediately fix it that will not change anything in terms of cost right now. These are just different ways that we want the regulations to work. One of those things needs to be cost containment somehow. There's a great article, and we'll put this on the Twitter feed also, uh, in Time Magazine a few years ago that really dove into some of the cost mm-hmm. of healthcare, And it, it's astounding. I mean, anybody who's ever been to the hospital and seen the bill, you know, usually you only get the insurance part where they're paying pennies on the dollar. But if you've ever actually seen the bill, there's a thing called, uh, you know, I had a shoulder surgery a few years ago, and there, amongst the many things on the, you know, itemized list was something called ice therapy for seventy-five dollars. That was yeah. a bag of ice for seventy-five dollars. Yeah. Sure, healthcare costs are, yeah. I mean, we and this, this is the, this is the, the, you know, the reality of it is, healthcare costs are are bonkers. Some of that, and you know, to be fair, there there is a potential partial solution to this, uh, and that is. A single payer system. Uh, single payer systems pay less for ice therapy than every than everyone else does. Than ever than anything other than a single payer system. Well, I mean, you just, Which have, is to not at, you just yeah. have to look at how Medicare and Medicaid their prices yeah. are significantly are significantly lower. lower. And even then, those are part those are driven, those are higher than they need to be. Right. Because I mean, anyway, with this, there's the, there's an entire I, I, I sense a potential healthcare episode coming, but you know it is not. This is if, if we do that, we should really find someone who knows what they're talking about. Absolutely not. That would be a terrible mistake. I think it's far, far. We should record it in a bar, uh, with just the you know just as we are at least two or three in. Uh, you know, but the point is that you know systems that use single pair so are regular. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> pretty much like yeah, pretty much like we always do. Uh, systems that use single pair. Sure, you don't get ice therapy for seventy-five dollars. You also don't get ice therapy for the you know for the you know seventy-five cents in you know bag ice and labor it takes to actually do it. Like it's not actually reflected of for of what the price should be. You might be paying fifteen dollars for ice therapy, which is still incredibly high for ice therapy uh, for a bag of ice, but you are not, or even twenty or twenty-five, but you're not paying seventy-five. Uh, that uh, that there is a growing sense that that some you know calling it Medicare for all. Uh, you know, there's any number of ways to describe that. There is a sort of growing sense on the dem- on the on the left, even within the Democratic Party, that, that may be the position that we need to stake out publicly. Uh, but one way or the other, Ellie is absolutely right. 
while you are attacking the Republican platform, uh, there needs to be some kind of counter because what we are all trying to acknowledge is uh, there is work to be done on the on healthcare. We cannot if if 2016 taught us anything, it's criticizing Republicans while saying everything is fine. Right is the worst possible approach to anything. Right, and you will end up as Kevin Bacon did, trampled underneath all the people running away from the parade during Animal House. Yes, that is a that, and and honestly, that's how people have been predicting that I would go for a long time. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's so, all happening again. You know, an important thing to remember in terms of uh, advocate, advocacy for all you budding advocates out there. Usually, the way you can convince congressmen and senators to do things, or any elected official, really, there's two tracks that you take: shame and fear. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. There's nothing happy about any of it. It is shame and fear. And if anybody tells you that it's otherwise, you need to hang them with their phone, stop paying them, and call us. But shame and fear are the primary principles. And really, it's really fear. And what is it fear of? It's fear of losing your seat, mm-hmm. which is why a, uh, a lame duck elected official is sometimes the most terrifying. Oh, God, um, yeah. Unless it's Jason Chaffetz. Mm-hmm. Yes, but yeah, I mean, he was. Which is not to say he's gotten any less terrifying. Right. He's just the way he always is. Someday, uh, someday, Devin Nunes's day will come, and he will be just as much of a benighted asshole then as he is right, right now. Right. And you know, Chavis is a perfect example. Uh, mm-hmm. If you think again on the shame, shame, fear scale, mm-hmm. one of the, it seemingly is one of the reasons he is stepping aside is because he was all geared up to investigate Hillary Clinton and lead her impeachment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't happen. He doesn't know how to interact with the Trump administration or how to do it. He's already fucked up, you know, several mm-hmm. investigations. This was not going to go his way. He has higher office aspirations. Mm-hmm. You can't fuck things up and win. Yeah. So that's fear. And the shame part is where you try to convince people that there's reason to be scared of things. The trouble is with a lot of these Republicans, as we started talking about, they're not really painting this bill in any broad strokes of any weight in any way. So when there are, you know, people who are ill, people are going to lose their insurance, and they're, you know, they they put together a protest of people in wheel uh, with people in wheelchairs and handicapped people and veterans who are going to lose, uh, you know, some of their some some of the uh, benefits that they get and. And, and uh, um, you know, mothers come with their sickly children and they all protest outside Mitch McConnell's office. Um, mm. Oftentimes that will work with legislators. The trouble is Mitch McConnell has nothing to fear. And he where his shame bone should be, he's just doubled down with gall. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, a, a very quiet sort of... This, this is a man who's missing his shame bone and has two gallbladders or some sort. <laughs> yeah, no, this is exactly right. Like, there's very little leverage over these people. Um, the only thing that you can really... Now, there are some, some vulnerable, uh, potentially vulnerable Republicans on this. Dean um, Heller being one Dean, particular yeah, one. Yeah, Dean Heller, be, yeah, Dean Heller being first on the list. Uh, you know, so they are... And, and that's, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I will make this plea to any Democrat who wants to advocate against this bill. Uh, and this is particularly to, you know, any elected officials who may be listening to this. I certainly, as, as we know that both, both that the Senate and House caucuses listen to this thing quite regularly. Or their, um, or their interns. Who, or their interns, who, yeah, exactly. Who, who we hear spend a good deal of time listening to us. That's exactly, sure. Yeah, that's, this, this is all quite, you know, listen, we're, we're, we're big in Brussels. So the, the appeal that I would make to any Democrat who's going to advocate against this is pretty straightforward. Uh, Yes, there are going to be uh, tens of hundreds of thousands of people who will lose their health insurance over this. Yes, thousands, tens of thousands of them uh, very likely may die as a result of this, and healthcare premiums are going to go up by tens of thousands of dollars. It is going to be tempting to put an exact figure in front of each of these on a state-by-state basis. 
There is a reason that Donald Trump can be an effective communicator at times. And one of those reasons is he understands how, because he, he understands how people process information. I think he does it at an instinctive level. You'll notice that Donald Trump never gives a specific figure for anything. This is whenever he's talking about something grand that has happened. He says, many, many of this, or sometimes he might say thousands of this, or you know, millions of this, or whatever, but he never gives a specific figure. Unless it's illegal votes. Unless it's illegal votes. Yeah, he loves that. But he never gives a specific figure when he's trying to sell, when he's trying to sell something. This is actually a very, and again, I'm convinced he does this instinctively. I doubt he has any awareness that he's doing it. But this actually is a really effective communication strategy when you think about how people process information. Because a listener will actually understand the words many, many, or thousands, or hundreds of thousands, general numbers, but honestly, many, you know, millions, is a number that the average that a human being understands better than the number uh, 650,000. How big is how big a number is 315 million? I don't know. Is it big? Is it small? This is just it's and and as and the brain and a, when and a listener gets caught up thinking about that number and trying to process what it means in a numerical context, as opposed to uh, actually processing what what they're being told, which is that thousands of people in their state or in their you know, thousands of their neighbors are going to lose their health insurance and their healthcare premiums are likely to go up by thousands of dollars. Yeah, you know. So it, keep your numbers general, people, please. The, this is bad enough; it makes its point for itself. Right. I mean, this is sort of branding one hundred and one. Uh, you know. You put the big scary thing up front without the number, and then once you've got their attention, then you start diving into the numbers. I mean, this is a significant. If you ever, if people ever watch the difference between the way Bill Clinton spoke and the way uh, President Obama spoke, Obama usually often started with numbers, mm -hmm. and then had to develop the case after that fact. Whereas Bill Clinton would start with the big thing to scare you or entice you and bring you in, and then explain why it's important. I mean, you can see this during his uh, his takedown of Romney and uh, Ryan at the 2012 convention, which uh, you know people should rewatch from time to time to really get an understanding of a Democrat with a message that is also um, doing the right thing in terms of putting forward a positive message, not just taking down the opponent. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's sort of the way he does it. I mean, it's the big thing and then the numbers, and that's what the poster needs to be. You know, everybody's going to die. How many people are going to die? Why are they mm -hmm. going to die? Sure. But then, importantly, and again, I mean, I think we've now said this four times today. Mm -hmm. How are you going to prevent them from dying? And it can't just be, well, we're going to keep the really shitty thing that we have now. Yeah. Again, being critical of your opponent without having it, without it, without acknowledging that there is a problem that needs to be fixed uh, is the uh, quickest and fastest way to hell. Yeah. 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 All right. I think we've kind of beat yeah. the AHCA to, to death. God, I wish we had. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we'll, we'll close this out pretty soon, but we do want to touch upon uh, the uh, ongoing uh, Russia Gate, Kremlin Great Gate. Yeah, the continuing, the Russian Does it have a gate yet? It, it, um, it's got several gates. White Russia? All <laughs> White Russians. White we should just, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I'm sure that's funny. Yeah. All right. Good. Excellent. Yeah, so there was a very, 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 very lengthy article in the uh, Washington Post mm -hmm. on Friday. Uh, it took me most of the morning to read it while I was in and out of sessions at, at the Truman Conference. And uh, the point basically came down to the Obama administration knew a lot more and had a lot more insight into what was happening much earlier on than we previously suspected. And the article basically boiled down to they didn't do anything. Yeah. And they, and and you know, in the article, they themselves described it. You know, I feel like we choked. I think was the quote. Yeah. Uh, and and the only the only unnamed source. The only I unnamed believe. source. There were other. I mean, yeah. 
Again, yeah. the way articles are written for people that don't understand how these sourcing methods work and, you know, the way that Trump gets away with, you know, these leakings and all this other kind of stuff. Reporters do their research. They talk to a lot of people. Some people are willing to go on the record. Some people are only willing to speak off the record. Some people are willing to speak on what's called background. So when that quote was given that, you know, you know, we fucked it up, but good. Um, that was a background quote. It's just a source with knowledge of the information. And that's okay because that person has provided a good deal of information otherwise, and therefore they are a trustworthy source. Whereas the other people who are quoted by name in the article, uh, people, um, Dennis McDonough, Ben Rhodes, uh, Susan Rice, I believe, is quoted in the article. Um, they said a lot more than that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> than just those quotes. And indeed, one of them could actually be the person who said, we fucked it up, but good, or whatever. You know, yeah, I feel like we choked. I yeah. feel like we choked. Um, so that's just, you know, that, that's just media relations 101. And perhaps at some point we should dive into that deeper if this, you know, bullshit with Trump and his leaking nonsense continues. He just leaks, doesn't he? I mean, he's wearing Depends now, no? Well, I mean... Who, I mean, who can say? Right. Who yeah. among us? Who among us? <laughs> who among us? That's exactly right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the gist of it is, uh, you know, from my perspective, I mean, the article speaks for itself. This is the problem with one of the limitations of the president's, uh, his entire candidacy, basically since 2004, since he gave that speech in Boston, uh, has been, uh, the, the, the keynote of the Democratic National Convention, has been framed as... No drama Obama. No drama Obama, that he, is, uh, highly bi that he is highly bipartisan, that he wants to be seen as someone who would act in the national interest rather than on the interest of his own party. And in this case, that, that froze him, because the, their entire thesis of not, of not making public declarations was, if Hillary Clinton wins, as she was at the time projected to do, uh, it's going to look like we put our thumb on the scale, that we tried to influence the outcome of the election, and, and, the, and democracy won't, won't, won't you know, will be, our democracy will be forever damaged by it. Uh, that is outthinking yourself. Uh, right. The straight, and I, and I think whoever said we, you know, we feel like we choked, has should say that because they did. Um, they outthought themselves. They got in their own heads on this one. You have dem you have evidence of a foreign power tending to influence an election, uh, potentially colluding with a campaign in order to do so. Uh, that well, not is just influencing an election. Yeah. I mean, there were active cyber meshes. I mean, we were under yeah. attack. Sure, exactly. Attack. Yeah, atta attacking the the democratic process of this country. Uh, that feels like something. You know, that feels like something that voters have a right to know because that is an important piece of information. Right. And they thought themselves out of it. And you know, one part of the story that I found of particular. I mean, well, We'll get this up on the Twitter feed. I haven't been writing down what we're putting up on the Twitter feed, so it might just continue to be cat gifs. Mm -hmm. GIFs. That's pretty gifs. much what the internet is. Yeah, yeah as we all know. Um, one person who also looks particularly bad in this article is our good friend Mitch McConnell. Um, you know, he, <laughs> he refused to sign on to a Gang of Eight letter. Uh, the Gang of Eight is essentially the leadership of the bipartisan leadership of the intelligence committees and uh, uh, leadership of of of, of the um, uh, Senate and House. Uh, they are to be briefed under most circumstances, even under the most covert situations. I don't really know all the rules and regulations. I don't know what actually is, is a rule or just tradition, mm -hmm. um, but it's a very strong tradition that the Gang of Eight is generally informed of things. Um, it was There was a big deal that they were not informed of the Bin Laden raid, and they were upset about that. Um, understandably, I suppose, but um, in, in this case, they were informed early on. Mm -hmm. And McConnell refused to... Uh, sign on put out a kind of collective statement by this you remember there was a lot of uh, hemming and hawing and by the time anything actually went out was also the day that the uh um pussy grabbing tape mm -hmm. dropped um so the the stories were kind of pushed off the front stages and then adam schiff and diane feinstein uh, came out with a very strongly worded it really is laughable when you kind of think <laughs> about just the oh my goddamn, god <laughs> the goddamn timeline mm -hmm. um so mcconnell uh, um 
you know, being classic Mitch McConnell, and again, I don't know if he's just the savviest strategist ever, or I don't know. No, what the no, other no shame, bone, two gallbladders. Yeah, it's an it's 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 an anatomical condition. You know, pray for Mitch. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> or don't, or don't. Right. Uh, but uh, um, he, his refusal to do that turned kept it as a political matter. Had he been willing to do that, it would have removed it from partisan politics. And Donald Trump could have kicked and screamed and said they put the thumb on. And 20% of the country would have cared. His base, the ones who are continuing to support him and listen to him and lap at his buffoonish drool coming off his face when he's in the Rose Garden saying one thing and then in Iowa saying something completely different the next week. Uh, they would have been upset, but they were going to be upset regardless. Sure. Yeah, and if, if he lost, there would always have been a there would always have been a conspiracy theory here. So I think the the assessment on the part of of the unnamed Obama administration official is absolutely right. I mean, they choked, and Mitch McConnell comes across as somehow even worse than he usually comes across, which is absolutely remarkable and frankly a degree of iniquity that I I never thought to see in my lifetime. Yeah, um, and on that happy note, uh, on that happy we, note. Do need, we do need to cut this uh, short. Um, well, thank you for listening. Hopefully, the uh, recording on this now that we're in the same room uh, is a little bit better. We're trying to still work through some of these uh, technical hiccups um, so that the audio is better for you guys each week. Um, please subscribe on uh, to uh, to the podcast on iTunes or whatever. Uh, to app you use, uh, rate us, leave a review. If you have time to tweet, you have time to leave a review. You can even tweet your review after you leave it, I believe. Yes, it's important. I know we do, and in spite of some guff that we've gotten from some quarters and you know who you are, it is in fact true that you have time to review if you have time to tweet. We know who you are. Don't lie to us. Correct. That's how we should end everyone. We know who you are. Don't lie to us. Yeah, uh, that's a little ominous sounding. Uh, um so, uh, you know, Twitter feed, Taking Ship, it's a ship with a P as in uh, Piccadillo. Um, and with that, since we're going to cut this a little bit short, Frank, where are we headed? Uh, this week we uh, take ship for the Barbary States. And the reason we take ship for the Barbary States uh, is that uh, the first iftar uh, dinner that uh, uh, the, ever held in the, uh, by the United States, by the, the government of the United States, excuse me, by the executive branch, uh, was held by Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it, it was uh, iftar is a celebration of Ramadan. Uh, for those who may not know, uh, it was and it was so. This is an old tradition in the United States that the White House has a has an iftar dinner to recognize Ramadan. Uh, you know, it might have been done on on his part um, in in part to uh, ease relations uh, with Muslims uh, because of his uh, small war with the Barbary states. Little naval difficulty there. Uh, but in any case, uh, it's. I think it's been. It is a. It is a quiet, but I think a very fine tradition uh, that, of course, naturally was therefore discontinued by Donald Trump. Uh, so you know, for the usual reasons, uh, which are that the best way to uh, advance uh, American interests, build uh, our leadership and our community, and uh, our leadership in the community of the world, uh, and also here at home uh, with Muslims, both American citizens and abroad, is of course to antagonize them at every possible goddamn turn. Uh, so. But, you know, Trump is not the only one around here who can make a diplomatic effort. So uh, in order to issue some kind of uh, apology for this, to sort of make up for, for this, uh, we have taken it upon ourselves uh, to go bearing a message of goodwill 
uh, to our friends in the Barbary States. I can't find the Barbary States on a map right now, but I'm sure it's around there somewhere. Uh, I, I know where it was, and I, I assume it's still there. And I'm assuming that if we turn up, uh, land on the beach, and just say, please take us to the leader of the Barbary States, good things will happen. Uh, so, uh, friends, uh, we take ship now for the Barbary States. Take care, everybody. <laughs>